Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's letter, as we continue our study now in family life and how the gospel is designed to shape our relationships in the home. Last week, we looked at how children should obey their parents. Tonight, we consider the other side of that relationship how parents should relate to their children. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless us in his word. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would grant that by this word, we would see Jesus and we would rest in him and that by the power of your spirit, we would become more like you, as a loving father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how should we then live together in our homes? Charles Francis Adams, grandson of uh, John Adams, President of the United States, son of John Quincy Adams, President of the United States, himself a U.S. congressman and ambassador to uh, Great Britain under Abraham Lincoln, he kept a diary. And he encouraged his kids, all ten of them, to keep a diary. One day he wrote in his diary this. Went fishing with my son today. A day wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, also kept a diary. Which is still in existence to this day. And on that same day, when he was eight years old, he made this entry. Went fishing with my father today. The most glorious day. Of my life. Now, the son thought it was the most glorious day. The father thought the day was a waste. Now, to be fair, when he wrote that, we don't know if he meant because somehow he spent time with his son as opposed to doing work, or whether he simply didn't catch any fish and the day was a waste. But whatever. The thought that the day was a waste likely never crossed the mind of his eight-year-old son. It was a day fishing with dad, the most glorious day of his life. Dad, your kids need you. And God calls you to love them. Loving them is how you are to respond to being loved by your heavenly father. And it would be easy for me to stand here and pick on Charles Francis Adams. We don't know his whole story. And so I want to share just a couple vignettes with you about my life that will make you tune out, not only for the rest of this sermon, but to everything I'll ever want to say to you ever again. Because I want to tell you, it's hard to be a parent. I remember hearing and not believing Ricky Jones, a pastor friend, who said that he didn't believe that people could could shake a baby and cause shaken baby syndrome until he had his own children. (laughs) And then he understood how that can happen. And I understand how that can happen. It's frustrating at times with kids. Remember a half a dozen years ago, I don't know if my kids remember it or not. Maybe I shared this story once before. I remember my kids being so nasty to one another. It doesn't matter who it was. 
that I found myself saying before I could stop myself, if you hurt them again, daddy is going to hurt you. Walk that back, dad. Can't get it out of the mouth. Pause. Let's change our words for a moment. Daddy doesn't mean it like that. There is going to be discipline. Don't misunderstand. But that's, that was not the disposition of my heart in the moment as I said that. And I told you, none of you are going to listen to me after that. But, but, but that's a story from six years ago. There have been many things as a parent since then. What is to be the shape of our love towards our kids? That shape which we all fail to adhere to and though we aspire to it. What should we aim for? He says two things, restraint and nourishment. Don't do this, he says, but do this. Restrain yourself on the one hand. Don't provoke your kids to anger. And then positively, nourish them, is what he says. Bring them up. That's the word he used for nourish back when he talked about how a man should love his wife because, you know, a man nourishes and cherishes his own body. So a man, a husband, should nourish his wife. That's the word he's using here for bringing your kids up. Nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So those two things, I want you to consider those two halves then. In the first place... Uh, well, we'll get there in just a moment. There's one other thing I want to add. Two comments, uh, maybe con- context comments. Uh, one is to say this, to make a comment about parenting itself. Uh, parents of young children want to parent rightly. Never met one that didn't. Desire somewhere in their heart. To parent rightly, it's a hard thing to do. The older your kids get, the more you realize you haven't done it right. (laughs) We want the safety of saying, if I do this, my kids will turn out okay. If I just get it right, if I do the right things, they'll grow up to be Christians. There's this fear that grips us, that makes us go out and buy every parenting book that has ever been written and devour them in the hopes that if I can just do my job right, my kids' lives will go well. And people who sell you that are lying to you, or at least deceived about what you need to hear and what's true. There is no perfect way to do it. That guarantees your kids will turn out perfect. Your kids need the freedom, freedom you give them, to grow up imperfect and learn that they need Jesus. That starts with you being imperfect before them, imperfect as a parent, imperfect as a Christian, and showing them and teaching them that you yourself need Jesus. And that you pray that God will do for them what you cannot do for them. You you cannot convince your kids of the truth of the gospel, but God can. You cannot change their hearts and save them, but God can. You cannot put the love of Jesus in their heart, but God can. And, And that's hard. It means you and I, we need to trust God with our children. You need to bring them to Jesus in prayer 
Entrust your kids to Jesus. Don't believe the lie that if you just get it right, they'll turn out all right. You won't get it right. And Jesus is the only one who can make them turn out the way that you desire. That, that's how Ephesians 1 to 3 fits with Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. If you just want to think about this text in its context. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. Jesus is the only one who can save you and he delights to save. Chapter 6, verse 4. Parents love your children this way. So that's the first comment, a word to parents. Second comment is a word about his language to fathers. He addresses himself here. Chapter 6, verse 4. Have we read the text yet? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, he had just been speaking to children that they should obey their, mother, their father and their mother. Why does he not reiterate the language of father and mother here and just says fathers? Perhaps because in Paul's day, in the Roman culture, the father, not the mother, had absolute power of life and death over their household. A Roman father could sell any family member into slavery. A Roman father could make uh, any family member work in his fields in chains. A Roman father had the power to inflict the death penalty by his own hand over his own family. He had that right as long as he lived. There was no age limit to the father's absolute control. And that's very foreign to us. That's not true in our culture. And frankly, in our culture, fathers tend to be far more passive. There may be a temptation for fathers to let their wives take the ball and run with it. Maybe if you're like me, you're a last-born child who married a firstborn, and it's easy to lean upon her competence. And this text... This text confronts us for being passive. Or maybe again, like me, you were raised in a non-Christian home and your spouse was raised in a Christian home and you lean on her strengths of understanding of what this might look like. And that's a good thing to do, but this passage is calling you, Dad, to activity, responsible activity. And whatever the case Paul may be doing here, it is clear in the Bible that Fathers will give an account before God of their family and they will give an account before God of the nurture that has gone on or hasn't gone on in that family. And so he speaks to fathers very pointedly and that's not that what he says doesn't apply to mothers. You can get away with provoking them to anger and you don't really have to nurture them. I mean, that's absurd. So... So then what is he saying? Well, he's saying two things, a negative and a positive. So, so then the negative. What is he saying? Parents, he's saying, do not provoke your children or, or exasperate your children or push them and drive them to anger or resentment. That's what he's saying. He's, he's saying we need to have a wise use of our parental powers. There's a, there's a wonderful parallel passage just over in Colossians chapter 3 that book that parallels Ephesians where he picks up the same language and in Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He actually tells you why not to do it. He doesn't pointedly say why in Ephesians 4. So he's saying, take care not to discourage them, not to dishearten them, 
not to make your kids lose heart, throw up their hands in despair and say, I've had it. I'm done. I, I, I don't know what these people expect of me. I can't do what they've asked me to do. Or are they just driving me insane? That's what he's saying here. Show restraint, parents. Now, so he's, so he's warning us away from the kind of dominating spirit, surely a controlling spirit, maybe an overly critical or overly harsh spirit that forces obedience in a context devoid of grace. That requires obedience without loving relationship and makes a child feel like a slave and causes them to despair. That is not how God treats you. Chapters 1 to 3, his grace lavished upon you. In in fact, chapter 2, verse 5, God being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved you. He made you alive in Christ so that in the coming ages he might display the the riches of his, his love and kindness to you in Christ Jesus. And then chapter 4, here's how I want you to live that out. Here's how it ought to shape the way that you live. See, it's in the context of a gracious relationship that he calls us to obedience. And so likewise in the home, God makes us his children. He puts his love in our hearts. And then he gives us commandments in the context of grace. Now, I should say, kids, Paul, the Apostle Paul is not saying, God is not saying through him that if you ever get mad at mom and dad, mom and dad have necessarily been wrong in the way that they have parented you. That's not what he's saying. In fact, you may frequently be mad at mom and dad where your will and desire crosses mom and dad's will and desire and mom and dad say, do not do something that you want to do, you might get mad at them. Or mom and dad require you to do something you do not want to do. You might get mad at them. That's family life. It's unsurprising. And that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. That your parents should obey your will and desire. That's not what he's getting at. But he is saying parents don't push your kids over a cliff. Don't drive them so hard so that they end up in the arms of resentment. Or anger. Nursed. That embitters them against you and against God. And there are various ways we do that. I want to highlight some of the ways I think that we do that. We can exasperate our kids by our expectations of them. Unreasonable expectations. Some of us are are afraid our children are going to fail. And the way we deal with our fear is we constantly push them to be better. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, Are our children ever good enough for us? Keith Hernandez, one of baseball's top players of all time, a lifetime 300 hitter. He won 11 Golden Globes as a Golden Gloves. He played real baseball, not pretend he wasn't an actor. 11 Golden Gloves uh, for excellence in fielding. One year he was named the most valuable player in Major League Baseball. He won two World Series as part of a team with two different teams. And yet with all these accomplishments, listen to the conversation he writes about that he had with his dad. One day Keith asked his father, Dad, I have a lifetime 300 batting average. What more do you want? And his father replied, but someday... 
you're going to look back and say, I could have done more. You know, sometimes parents literally crush their kids by their expectations, academic expectations or social expectations or athletic expectations being so demanding that the pressure on the kid just crushes them. And I want to say, parents, are your kids, are they good enough for you, so to speak, if you understand what I mean? Your children believe you when you tell them that they're not good enough. But that is not what God tells you. Do you remember the gospel? God fully accepts you into his beloved family as his own beloved child. And God looks at you who are unrighteous in yourself and he calls you righteous. And he declares you righteous. And he treats you as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ accounted to you. He says, you are my beloved and I love you. And you haven't done enough for him. God calls us to love our kids the way that he has loved us and not provoke them to anger. So we can have unreasonable expectations and drive them to exasperation. We can also do it with criticism. We can also just simply anger them with harsh criticism. And it's wonderful to consider how easy that would have been for Jesus to do with his own disciples. I mean, think of how often Jesus could have said, Peter, don't do that. John, stop that. Matthew, quit speaking like that. He could have, had he wanted to, as the perfect son of God, dealing with an imperfect humanity, he could have said in any hour or minute or week or day or decade of their lives, again and again said, you're just wrong. Get it together. And yet he finds numerous opportunities again and again even to commend his disciples and to encourage them in a positive way without constantly finding fault with them. And we need to allow our children to fail and to make mistakes and to know that our love for them is not conditioned upon their obedience. We need to catch our kids doing well. Mom and dad, not just catch them doing poorly and criticize them. So we can exasperate them with criticism. We can exasperate them by favoritism. It's, it's easy. It's easy in a family for mom and dad to communicate, however much they, they don't realize even they're doing it, to communicate that they love one child more than another, that they approve of one child more than another. And you know what a disaster that created in, in the, the life of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. You remember Isaac favored Esau over Jacob, but his wife Rebecca favored Jacob over Esau, and the results were absolutely horrendous. And likewise, we need to be careful not to prefer one child over another, not to compare one child over against another and say, why can't you be more like your older brother? Why can't you do things like they do them? And therefore unfairly compare them and hurtfully compare them and give the impression that we care more, love more, accept more 
one over the other. It's a dangerous thing to do with our kids. Now listen, if you need to tell them to be like somebody, tell them to be like Jesus. There's no higher standard than that. And tell them God is determined to make them like Jesus and he has promised one day in glory they will be just like Jesus because God is committed to them. So we can exasperate our kids um, by unfairly comparing them. And uh, we can exasperate them by failing to distinguish our rules from God's rules. It's important to let kids know the reason you do things the way that you do them in your home. Sometimes that's because God says. And, and you're just trying to be an obedient child to your own heavenly father. And so you're saying to your kids, this is the way we do it because God says we should do it this way. And you want them to own that principle for themselves for a lifetime because it's the right thing to do. But some rules in your home are just your personal preference. It's just your personality and preferences, your likes and dislikes. And you do what you do in your home and you tell your kids, this is the way that we do it. And you need to not confuse your kids. You need to help them see This is the way we do it because this is what we want. And one day you're going to grow up and it's okay for you to have a different kind of family life. You can think differently about this than mom and dad. You fall in line under our roof. Uh, I think an example of this uh, can easily be the Lord's Day. Sunday by Sunday, we we put aside our work. We we gather in public worship together. And God calls us to do that. He, he, He invites us to rest from our labors, he invites us to gather in his presence and be blessed by them. And we teach our kids to do that. You're modeling that tonight. But there may be things you choose to do on the Lord's Day that are just your family preference on how you rest or how you celebrate or how you feast or uh, how you carry out the benefit of the day, how, how you do works of piety and necessity and mercy, whether you choose to visit family and grandparents or you choose to open your home and show hospitality or you choose to to have a quiet restful nappy sleepy afternoon or or whether you dress a certain way or you eat certain foods on Sunday only to make the day special or whatever it is you do or don't do and make your kids do or not do they need to understand where those are God's and where those are yours. We need to distinguish these things for our children. And we can, let me just say finally on this point, that we can exasperate our children by acting like we're never wrong. It's important to own our mistakes, our own sins, and to ask for forgiveness when we fail. And I don't know whether you've grown up in a home where that never in your life ever happened. Mom and dad were never wrong, or at least they never admitted it, either to one another or to kids. I've I've been in that situation myself. You don't learn the language of the gospel in a home like that. But the language of the gospel is, I messed up, and I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive dad. Please forgive me. Our children are going to learn to ask for forgiveness when they have really messed up if we learn to ask for forgiveness when we have really messed up. And so he broad brushes. He says, don't drive, provoke your kids to anger and so create discouragement so that they lose hope. 
That's the negative side. And on the positive side, he says, but, but do this, nourish them or bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Three big ideas here. He's saying nourish them. We have this huge old tree in our backyard, which we will dearly miss as we move. It, it rises uh, from the back of the property up and it, and it goes like this towards the house. And it's, a, it's a, amazing to hang a tire swing from there because the pendulum is just you know, 20 feet in each direction. It's incredible. Now, how did that tree get that way? It didn't suddenly one day at the age of 40 or 50 years old bend over. But rather, it's, it's right up against another tree. And as best I know, I wasn't there to see it. As the two grew, one was on the side and perhaps taller where it gathered the light. And the other began to bend, even as a twig, away from the tree over it. And to reach for the sunlight that nourished its leaves, that fed it and gave it life, as trees everywhere do. They, as it were, reach for light and are fed on that. Likewise with children. We grow and bend and reach. Like, likewise with all people. We reach for what we think gives us life. We lean in that direction. We might be wrong about what gives it. But that's where your life direction is. Parents, he's saying, nourish them in the love of God in Christ. Feed them on the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Because as the twig is bent, so is the tree. An interesting illustration of that is in the the life of a distinguished painter, Benjamin West. He he painted his friend, Ben Franklin. Uh, He he painted some famous uh, American Revolutionary War paintings, uh, an unfinished George Washington and others. He, He says that one day when he was very young, His mother went out and she left him in charge of uh, his younger sister, Sally. And while mom was out, he discovered a bunch of bottles of colored ink. And he decided to paint his sister's portrait. And he made a huge mess. And when mom got home, she didn't make a big deal out of the terrible ink stains everywhere. But instead, she picked up the piece of paper. She looked it over and she said, oh, it's Sally. And then she stooped down and kissed him. And Benjamin West says, my mother's kiss made me a painter. Her graciousness, I think he's saying, shaped my life by encouraging and not discouraging me. Perhaps that's that grace that worked itself into his heart in such a way that he he went on to be uh, a, um, a mentor to dozens of other now famous American painters. Maybe because he had been encouraged, he wanted to be an encourager. So we, we nourish our kids, and we nourish them, it says, in the discipline of the Lord. And we could talk a lot about discipline, and this isn't the place to do a whole study on it, but the book of Proverbs is filled with good counsel to parents. In Proverbs thirteen twenty four. It says, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. In Proverbs 29, verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, 
But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So a parent who rebukes, corrects, disciplines when necessary shows more love than a parent who says and does nothing. As Proverbs says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Proverbs 27 verse 5. Uh, And children may gripe about being disciplined, even when it's fair. But even then, they know that they are loved. I sat with a former student. I was his high school youth leader. And after he had graduated from college, we were talking about some of his peers that he grew up with. And he made the offhanded remark that as he was in high school, his parents had disciplined him. And he knew that they loved him. But he knew that he had friends whose parents didn't discipline them at all. And he knew that they had not been loved. Parents, it's it's love to confront, to care, to teach, to admonish and correct. That's love, but we all have to watch our attitude when we discipline. And I have failed at this so many times that uh, I put it in here because somebody else out there, I'm sure, has failed at this too. It's easy to discipline our kids when we are angry at them or when we are annoyed with them. You know, when, when, you're, when you just wish they would sort of go away and quit irritating, or you just, you just at the end of your rope, and you are done. And it's, it's fascinating to consider that when you discipline them in, on those occasions, what you are actually communicating to them is that you are disciplining them on account of how you feel. And that is extremely self-centered, and it's probably the very thing you're disciplining them for, their self-centeredness. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, when you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control, control of Temper is an essential prerequisite to the control of others. And mom and dad, if that means you just need to take time out, you need to settle down so that you can discipline them not in anger but in love. Not for retribution and wrath to give them what they deserve. But like God disciplines his own children in grace and not justice, he disciplines. And yes, it hurts, but he does it because he loves us. And he has our best in mind, and our tempers need to show that to our kids. So we, we nourish them, and we discipline them in the Lord, and we, and we nourish them in the knowledge of the Lord. This is the second word he uses, instruction. It means verbal teaching. We raise them in the knowledge of the Lord. I think this image is so helpful to me, and I've used it before, that what parents are doing is they are stacking wood in a fireplace as they raise their kids. Most people don't get converted instantaneously. If you just sit down over the dining room table and explain the gospel to your kids and, you know, boom, they suddenly get converted. That's not how most people get converted. But, but drip, 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 year after year after year, we hear of the love of God in Christ and our need. And God in his own good time brings them to saving faith. And so what's actually happening is this. 
We're stacking wood in the fireplace and we're waiting for the time when God will set the fire. And Tim Keller, who pastors in New York City, has, has a, a helpful statement about this in his own church, which is, which is in midtown Manhattan, filled with yuppies, singles who've gone off to make it rich in New York City. He says this, most of the people he encounters grew up in church and they chafed at it and they try to get as far away as they can. And in New York City, that's oftentimes Manhattan, where they go to sow their wild oats and to get rich. And then he says they end up being lonely and broken. And they end up at the church and they hear the gospel again and they're converted. And all that firewood that was set in their heart by parents and churches through years of work suddenly goes up in flame because it's fuel for the fire. And he says they become wise leaders in the church very quickly. But occasionally he says, I'll somebody come in, walk off the street, no background in Christianity whatsoever at all, and they'll get converted. And, and it's the talk of the church. It's a spectacular thing. It, 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 it arouses everybody's interest. But he says, what I want you to know is that those people are handicapped now they're complete in christ that they're they have every blessing you do in christ that's not what he's getting at but he's saying this it's years before they're able to make wise decisions it's years before they're able to be leaders in the church because there's nothing in the fireplace and what we're doing he he says when we raise children when we raise them in the churches, we're preparing them for the day when the Lord will convert them and there's fuel for the fire and they're ready to follow Jesus. And this kind of relationship, friends, is, is long-term. Parenting is a long, lifelong proposition. And if your children are older tonight and they're wandering from the Lord, it is not too late. Them. Do not lose hope. God loves to call prodigals back home to himself. He loves to find people who have left home, who have squandered every advantage and opportunity the family provided, who have misused and abused, who have been ungrateful, and find themselves on the other side of that in squalor, eating from a pig trough. And he loves to find those people and rescue them. Jesus is the good shepherd who will leave 99 to go find one and bring them home to himself. And so I say to you, it is not too late for your adult children if they have wandered away. Don't give up on Jesus and his ability to find them. But pray. Pray, plead, and ask. He loves to save hard cases. And as you hear all of this, as you listen to me tonight, if you say, I I just stink at being a dad, then I say to you, good. It is good that you know that you fail at being what God calls you to be. It's good for you to own up to your failures 
And then remember that Jesus has owned your failures upon the cross. Because your father in heaven delighted to give his own son on your behalf. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're good, kind, gracious, generous, abundant in mercy. Beyond our wildest expectations or understanding. And you have not in any way denied your good and holy and just and righteous character. We pray that you would make us more like yourself and forgive us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.